We're at a watershed moment in what I believe is happening in our country. You know, I lived through the Jim Crow of the 50s. I lived through the Civil Rights Movement of the 60s and 70s. But this is different. This movement is being led by young people. Young people of all colors, all backgrounds, all shapes, all sizes, all genders. These young people today are saying enough is enough. We want to live in a different type of world. This is a time of change. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. I'm delighted to welcome new and returning listeners to the first episode of what promises to be a very special season of our podcast. In support of the brave and necessary protests calling for the eradication of all forms of racism, we're dedicating this season to amplifying Black voices. You'll hear from pioneering artists, designers, educators, and changemakers, all as fiercely talented as they are committed to leaving the world a better place than they found it. I couldn't be more excited to share their triumphs and challenges, as well as their insights into how we can all become better allies, both individually and institutionally. There's something almost poetic about beginning this season of listening and learning with today's interview with Bob Davidson, who, after 10 years as chair of Art Center's Board of Trustees, recently stepped down from his post. Bob was instrumental in my decision to assume the role of Art Center president. Over the past 11 years, our collaboration has been one of the most profoundly transformative of my entire career. Our bond transcended our professional roles. For all intents and purposes, he was my boss, and became something much richer and deeper, rooted in our shared values and an almost spiritual commitment to manifesting the college's mission statement, learn to create, influence change. And change we did. In partnership with Bob, we launched two iterations of a strategic plan that prioritized long-term sustainability and diversity. As a result, the college has grown in many important ways. We all know, however, there's still much work to be done, which we discuss at length in today's conversation. Even though Bob and I have known each other for over a decade, our candid conversation was nonetheless revelatory. To hear firsthand about some of the details of the racism he faced Growing up in the Jim Crow South was certainly chilling. It was similarly striking to learn further about the subtle biases he experiences in his daily life now. At the same time, he confirmed through his stories many of the qualities and achievement I've long admired in Bob. His self-made success at the highest levels of business, his deep values, and his steadfast refusal to let anyone stand in the way of progress, his or anyone else's for that matter. Finally, one closing caveat, these unprecedented times have truly become a laboratory for adapting to changes big and small on a daily basis. That of course includes the process of making Change Lab, which is now recorded remotely instead of in our studio on campus. So please know that these new variables account for any differences you may notice in our usual sound quality. We had a few problems, which were, I confess, mostly my fault. We will get better at it, promise. Please enjoy my conversation with Robert Davidson. I often like to get a little sense of the, the background of our guests and 
just who they were way back when. Um, and uh, I often link it to their kind of creative life. I certainly do want to link it to your creative life, but also your leadership life, your values, your entrepreneurial spirit, and, and the rest of it. And uh, I just want to take you back to uh, Memphis, where you were born, and uh, get you to reflect a little bit on who you were mm. as a kid. Well, um, born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I am an only child. I am the son of uh, a couple of parents that were entrepreneurs. My mother founded a restaurant in 1944 with her own hands. She went down and found a place and opened it and painted it and washed it and put in the equipment and whatever. And told my father she was opening this restaurant. And uh, she saw that there was a need for a restaurant uh, for uh, black uh, uh, military or, or, uh, or sailors and army people to go to. It was in the middle of the war. And I was in the segregated South, and there was no place for black military to actually to, to go and eat in Memphis. And she opened this restaurant called Davidson's Grill in 1944. She was in the realm of the spirit in which she lived. She was really working very hard, doing everything from buying the food to cooking it to bringing the cashers to encounter the money. My father was working as an, in, as, a, as an insurance salesman. Well, shortly after, you know, several months or six months or so after she got into this and became successful, you know, all of a sudden my father realized it was a better business than what he was in. And he stopped selling insurance and he joined her. And it became, then it became their restaurant, of course. And they uh, became pillars of the, of the Memphis community in general, and certainly pillars of the black community, uh, in the sense that their restaurant was a place where people of all walks of life would come because uh, African-Americans had no other place to go, other, many other places to go and eat. And so you would have doctors and lawyers and post office people and trash collectors all coming there with their families to eat. I called it a Davidson University from my standpoint uh, because I grew up uh, in that restaurant uh, working, washing dishes and waiting tables, and more importantly, learning how to work on the cash register, which, which cash register I still have today. I have it in my garage. I kept it after wasn't their business. And I guess that's where I got my entrepreneurial desires because I never saw my parents work for anyone. Every day I knew that you had to get up and make rain because, you know, if you didn't make rain, you know, it, there would be a drought. And so that's what they did every day. And I, you know, and I sort of followed in their footsteps. My mother was a, not only a businesswoman, but um, a person with a huge heart and a great philanthropist. And although she was successful in her business uh, and, and active in her church, she also saw that the black community, young kids in the black community, did not have much in terms of clothes and food and opportunity. And um, more specifically, uh, neither did uh, um, black orphans. And, and so she founded with her own hands, like she did at a restaurant, the first orphanage for black children in Memphis, Tennessee. And my father was a consummate businessman. He thought, he ate, he slept, he only talked business. That was sort of like, and he 
uh, got together with some of his other colleagues there and founded the first and now the only, still the only black bank in Memphis, black owned bank in Memphis, Tennessee, called Tri-State Bank and it's still there today because um, black people had no banks to go to during that period of time. And Memphis was a, Memphis is a small community, uh, but the schools were segregated. And in the 19, early 1960s, sort of the beginning of the civil rights movement, um, my parents were actively involved with NAACP and et cetera. And they were looking to integrate the schools in Memphis. And of course, my parents volunteered me uh, to integrate uh, one of the local high schools over the summer. Uh, and that was a very, uh, a very traumatic experience, you know, people putting firecrackers, firecrackers under our car and, you know, throwing paper balls and hitting us in class and, you know, doing all sorts of things to aggravate us. And that was an interesting, you know, experience. They um, put signs on lockers and told us to get out. And they uh, threw paper at us. And they shoved us in the halls. And they shoot, uh, threw chalk at us and said all sorts of nasty things. And it just made me feel bad. And I couldn't concentrate at all on my lessons. Now, because my parents were in business, uh, I did have, you know, a fortunate, uh, you know, childhood in the sense that there was not a anything that I wanted for, if you will. Uh, but because things were segregated, there were no public libraries or museums, amusement parks or zoos, and no public library. But every summer, my parents would close their restaurant in the month of August, and we would do what in the 50s, what they call motoring. And they'd get in the car and we'd drive to Chicago or New York or Philadelphia. Detroit, Michigan, birthplace of the Ford Motor Company, cradle of the American road. Right in this shop, Henry Ford hopefully built his first car, dreaming of an entire nation on wheels, free to move, free to grow. So I did have the opportunity of being exposed to a different world. And as a result of their exposing me to, you know, a different world, I knew there was a, a better life than what I was experiencing in Memphis. So that's, and I, and it's kind of like my, my Memphis growing up experience. I mean, my va my values come from my parents, you know. Uh, my mother always said, treat other people the way you want to be treated. And, you know, that sticks with me today. And I've tried to pass those values on to, you know, onto our three sons. It's an amazing story, Bob, and it, it's, uh, it speaks volumes about who you are today. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, the notions of being a pillar of the community, the entrepreneurial spirit, the business spirit, the huge heart and kindness that you carry with you all the time, your uh, sense of volunteerism, the story of your mother in the orphanage is an amazing story as well, layered into this very beautiful tapestry of narratives that you just went through. Um, just a quick follow-up on what you just said, that I'm interested in, in your own memories as a kid of your awareness of segregation, your awareness, uh, your own sense of 
what was happening around you, what you remember thinking about that, and maybe even what the kind of support that your community gave you. Obviously, your immediate nuclear family gave you, or your parents gave you great strength, but was there also a larger community in Memphis that surrounded you and buoyed you and gave you strength? So, you know, the old saying, it takes a village to raise a child. And that is that is clearly true in this case, in that uh, the black community in Memphis was a village. And uh, I had hundreds of parents, if you will. I mean, there was not nothing I could do that would not let me go astray. But I have, I have very uh, vivid memories of segregation and its impact on me and my resentment of it. Uh, man, you take me down memory lane now. Um, I remember, uh, you know, I, thought, I always thought I was going to be a doctor. And uh, my doctor was Jewish and that they took me to. And he became a good friend of mine uh, and, and sort of a mentor as a child. And I used to, to go to his office, he served white clients, but he had a, he had a back door which we had to go through as, a, you know, as black people. And I remember asking him one day, you know, why, why do I need to go to this black door? And he, he very humbly just said, I'm sorry, I apologize that you got to do that. That's kind of the way it is. I've got patients coming in who are sick and, and they would be further aggravated if you know, they were, you know, they were with a black person. And I don't know, I have no other explanation for you. But he happened to be, end up being one of my colleagues. College, uh, uh, my references for college, by the way, he wrote me a letter of reference to, for college. Um, but I resented it um, a lot. Um, I would rebel against it a lot. I remember specifically the experience, and I say probably what drives me in my life, still driving me, is I was on a bus one day and you had to sit on the back of the bus. And I refused to sit on the back of the bus. I just, you know, I just... Why do I need to sit on the back of the bus? And this bus was coming through our community. It was a black community. So I sat down on the front of the bus. This bus was basically empty. And this little white lady got on the bus. And with all the empty seats on the bus, she came over to me and she said, boy, you got to move to the back of the bus. And I said, excuse me? She said, you can't sit in that seat. You got to move to the back of the bus. You know, and I tried to politely say, well, look, there are plenty of seats for you to sit in. And it's next to you, if you don't mind. And she says, I know you need to move and you need to move to the back of the bus. I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm planning to sit here. She said, well, I'm going to tell the driver. I said, well, you can tell the driver. And then she took, she had an umbrella. And she took the umbrella and she hit me with it. And she said, I told you, boy, you need to move. And, you know, I said, lady, if you hit me with that umbrella again, I'm going to take it from you. And, and I may have hit you, <laughs> hit you with it. So she's, oh, you're a smart boy. So, so she tells the bus driver, he's white. He tells me to move and I don't, I refuse to move. So he says, well, you know, I'm going to call the police. So he pulls up to a, he pulls up to a payphone and he goes out to call the police. Well, my mother had an ugly kid, but not a dummy. So I knew that if the police got involved, it was going to be a little more, <laughs> a little more brutal than an umbrella. So as they were out summoning the police on the payphone, I managed to sneak off the back of the bus and leave. But I say, uh, I'm probably driven by every day proving to that little lady 
that I can sit still sit on the front of the bus. And that's sort of emblematic of, of my life, you know, and, and what I continue to prove to those people that the front of the bus is available to everyone. Thank you, Bob. Incredibly yeah. powerful. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to take you out of that time capsule a little bit, though I, I know you so well and we're close friends and I can just see, uh, you know, that the connections are so profound to who you are today. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fast forward you to another period of your life, and that's the uh, surface protection industries. And I, I, what I want to do before we get into some questions of the day and getting your perspective on some of these things, I want listeners to get a sense of where you took all of this. And I would love for you to talk then first about surface protection industries, uh, this business that you developed uh, to be really, as, a, as far as I know, really one of the largest African-American-owned manufacturing companies in California. Okay, let me, let me make a bridge for you. A bridge from Memphis to there, okay? So I ended up leaving to go to Morehouse College, uh, major in pre-med, failed chemistry three times, and after, after the third term, I realized pre-med was not my major. <laughs> and then went to my counselor, who happened to be head of the business department, and he said, well, what do you know? You know, tell me a little about your background. And I told him about my parents. He says, well, why don't you major in business? And I changed my major to business, and voila, the world opened up, and hey, here's something I, I really know, and then really something I can do and graduated you know, there and then went on to University of Chicago uh, Business School and got my MBA and then went to, on to New York and worked in corporate America and worked there for a couple of years and realized that I was not a corporate America guy. Although I owned a Brooks Brothers suit, I was not a Brooks Brothers guy. Uh, so I then left corporate America and moved to Boston and uh, co-founded with two other partners, three of us young Turks, we went out in the early 1970s and went around to major corporations uh, like Morgan Garrity, Morgan Stanley, Harvard, Yale, major insurance companies. And we raised $10 million to invest in minority-controlled businesses. So he did that, and I was uh, in charge of, after we raised the money, we didn't invest it. And I was the only single guy in the group, and so I drew the short straw of overseeing the California companies portfolio companies. And one of our companies that we had invested in needed a second round of financing and and we needed to have a new management team. And the principal of that business said, well, you know, if you're so smart, why don't you come run it? And I said, no, I'm not, not a job interview. I'm here to tell you, you need to bring in another manager if you want this additional money. And he said, no, I'm serious. I said, no, 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 I can't do that. It's a conflict of interest. It was January and I, and I flew back from California to Boston in January and it was snowing and, you know, raining and, you know, probably 15 degrees. And I said, mm, that wasn't a bad offer. <laughs> so I called him back and I said, you know, why don't we have a conversation? So <laughs> we agreed and my partners agreed that it was not a conflict and they bought me out. And I moved here to run, you know, a record company, a music publishing company and a radio station and worked there for running that business for a couple of years, and then afterwards said, well, if I can run somebody else's business, I can run my own. So in 1976, 
I liquidated everything that I own and put it in the bank and put myself enough money aside to live off of for two years, give myself two years to do it, and realizing I could eat peanut butter and jelly for two years and, you know, and not spend any money and have enough money to invest in the business. And I went about the business school model of identifying a business, you know, side to size, the market size, blah, 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 put together, plan to do that. And over a year and a half, two year period, I was looked at a number of deals that never, none of them worked. Sort of at the, getting to the end of my road, about in, in it about a year and a half, my then lawyer called me one day and said, well, Bob, how'd you like to be in the paint business? I said, you know, I'm not doing anything else today. That sounds pretty good. And he sent me over the financials and it was strictly a family run business. They didn't have financial statements. All they had was tax returns. And I, I started going through them, the numbers and looked at it and couldn't believe it. And I got into bed and slept a couple of hours and woke up and called him. I said, let's go do this. So in 1977, uh, we started to go and negotiate with this family for the acquisition of this business in the fall of 77. And I remember then, after having negotiated a letter of intent, that I had to go to a bank and I had to get bank finance. So I went in to see this banker who was a banker of my lawyer out in Century City. And, uh, and it was Halloween. I, I always remember this story. And this banker one was dressed up as a ghost. He had a white sheet on. So I went in to meet with him. I never met with him before. And I made this presentation by myself. I said, look, I, you know, I've got this business. Here's who I am, blah, 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 blah. And I said, I've got this business. It's been around for this period of time. You know, and, uh, you know, you have negotiated this purchase price and here's the structure of financing, et cetera, and I need bank financing for it. And he said, when he, went, he listened to me very, very, and sort of intently, and he said, well, what do you know about the bank business? I said, well, I don't know anything about the business, but I'm a smart guy. <laughs> and I said, I'm a, you know, I'm a quick learner. And he says, well, I tell you what, you go, you come back and demonstrate to me that you know something about the paint business. And I will agree that I will consider giving you the bank financing on this deal. And I said, stop right there. Said, That's the most I can expect out of this meeting because you don't know me. You don't know what I know. You don't know that business. And I got to demonstrate that to you. And I said, and I will, I will take your challenge, you know, and I'll go and do that. And then I said to him, and by the way, you're the first white man with a sheet on I've ever asked for money. And he thought that was funny. He just cracked up and laughed and said, and you got it. He said, and you got a sense of humor. So I'm going to do your deal. Okay. So I then spent the next uh, six months of due diligence in the business, living at the Anderson School of Business, learning everything I could about the paint business, and ended up writing a placement memorandum and put the structure of talking about the paint business and what I knew about it, and et cetera. And I went back six months later and dropped it on his desk and said, there you go. This is what I know about the paint business. He said, well, you kept your word. He said, let's go do this deal. So July 10th in 1978 is when uh, I bought my first paint company. Uh, I wanted to be in the specialty coatings business. 
uh, because that's where the margins are and that's where you get customer loyalty. Um, in the paint industry, about 50% of the paint is manufactured by large companies like PPG and Sharon Williams and those. Well, the other 50% is manufactured by, by regional companies, like the one I bought. And I realized that if I were able to carve out specific market niches, I would be able to uh, gain customer loyalty, get margins, not fight with the big guys, etc. And then I bought the second after after 78, and I bought the second paint company, 1981, and then went on to roll up and buy another paint company in 1988. At the end of the day, I ended up owning four different paint companies, uh, all under one roof from a manufacturing standpoint, but all with different marketing arms. serviced distinct market, each one of them in specialty markets. One was in the specialty market that serviced the moving TV studio business. Uh, we supplied 80, 90% of the paint using all the moving TV sets uh, in the city. Uh, so whenever you look to Jaws or King Kong or Waterworld or whatever it is, that's our paint on those sets. Uh, and what's unique about that is the movie business is not concerned about quality of paint, they're concerned about service. They want the paint on for one day so they can they can shoot the scene and they tear it down and paint it with something else. So we were their one-stop shop for them from paint to everything else. Then they had one business which supplied the, the furniture manufacturers and picture frame manufacturers in Southern California. Uh, the wood business is huge in, in Southern California and in the Southwest for, for, for people who make uh, products that are made out of wood. And we were made, providing products that are on wood substrates like picture frames like uh, shutters, like uh, tables, desks, chairs, etc. Third business was a business which grew organically out of one of the other businesses where we supplied paint products that were used in the automotive repaint business, and um, primarily for the backup of pickup, back of pickup pickup trucks. This is a business where I say I was driving along one day, and you know, as before, cell phones were in cars. And that was my quiet time to think. And I, I was noticing all of the pickup trucks that, that were passing me by on a daily basis. And all of them had, a, had bed liners in the back of the pickup trucks. And the bed liners had an array of colors, black, black, and black. And I said, hmm, what if we, I can come up with a paint that can go in the back of a pickup truck that can match the, match the color of the truck? And so we took a couple of years, developed a product. And there were only about 10 colors that they make trucks in. We matched those and built a business out of it. And then the flagship business was a was a business where we sold to, we marketed to architects, builders, and developers, but we sold to painting contractors where we supplied a proprietary product that's used in the office buildings. One's called Zolotone, the other one's called Polymex, and it's a texture material that looks like vinyl wall covering. And we were selling against, against vinyl wall covering as opposed to selling against paint because vinyl wall covering is a high-end, expensive product, and we, we were able to provide a product that was half the price and twice the durability. So I had to build those four businesses uh, and spent 30 years, you know, in the business doing that, and it was a, it was a lot of fun. Little did I know that we were in the design business because we, our, our products only had a life of... 18 months. I mean, every 18 months, you had to come up with something new. You had to design something new, uh, or you would be stale. Okay. Uh, and so 
the, the model of our business was I spent a lot of money in, in R&D, uh, a lot of money in research and development. Uh, but we had a lot of chemists, a lot of chemical engineers on staff. But the products were designed by a designer. He'd gone to design school. I went to hire him, okay, and I went to hire him as, really as, as, as my uh, vice president of sales for the, you know, and he said, well, Bob, I don't know anything about selling. I said, don't worry, I teach, I teach you how to sell, okay? I just want you to help me design products. And he would design product. He would. He, he was a tinkerer. He would go out. He, he'd come up with stuff, uh, and he'd come back and say, "Well, I got this idea." And then we'd go into the chemical engineers and say, "You know, we got this idea. Can you make it?" Okay. And they'd go and work six months on it and come back and say that they can. Bob, if you're comfortable, I, I wonder if you could continue the story that you began to tell from your uh, time in Memphis and, and your upbringing. In your business life, could you walk me through ways in which bias and other forms of racism on, on any level that is pertinent that you faced as you made your way through this? Well, I've faced it all my life. I face it every day. So first of all, I have a philosophy in life. As a black man in this country, you have a ball and chain around your leg. You have two choices. You can sit and say, oh, woe is me. I got this ball and chain around my leg. And why don't you feel sorry for me? And why don't you do something for me? Or you can pick up the damn ball and chain and you can get in the race and you can run it and you can win the race. And when you win the race, you say, oh, and by the way, you got a ball and chain around your leg, okay? So I have ascribed to the latter, which is, you know, I got this ball and chain. You know, I, I face this discrimination, but it does not phase me, does not get the best of me. I'm, it's my job to get the best of it. The best revenge is success. And so that's what I've tried to do. So some of the business experiences, when I owned a business in Boston and I had to buy a building to put it in, in the real estate market, was in the dumps in Boston. So I was going to go take advantage of that. And there were a lot of buildings that had been repossessed by banks, et cetera. And I had a broker working with me. So I found this building I was going to buy. And uh, I'd been talking to the banker by phone. I'd never met him. I, so I set a meeting for him when I make a trip back to Boston. And my manager for my business back there was, was, uh, was white. And he went with me to the meeting. So we were sitting in the lobby of the bank, waiting on the banker to come out. And he comes out, and he walks right up to the young man that works, works for me, and he says, hello, Mr. Davidson, how are you? And he said, sheepishly, I'm not Mr. Davidson. This is Mr. Davidson. And he looked at me, and Lauren, he was beat red. But you know what? I knew I had him. Because he was, he was defensive from then on. So whatever I wanted, I asked for the moon. Okay? <laughs> you know, because make him pay for his sins. And we ended up buying the building. So I tried to turn the table, you know, if you will, when faced with that, those instances, and use them, use them to my, you know, advantage. When <laughs> you enjoy this, when I bought the business, 
1978, we had retail stores. And I didn't know anything about the paint business, okay? I convinced a banker that I did, but I really didn't. But I figured the best way for me to learn it was to work in the retail stores on the weekend. So I'd go out to the retail stores, work in the store, servicing customers, pulling paint off the shelf, doing whatever. And I'm working in the store out in Riverside. And this customer's buying paint. The customer says to the store manager, can I have your boy take this stuff out to my car? And the manager looked up to me and I said, I put a finger in my mouth and I, and I said, oh, yes, sir, I'd be happy to take it to your car. And I picked it up and took it in my car. To me, it was always, you know, it's important that the money go to the bank, okay, rather than, than, than argue about it. Uh, and the impression that that made to my manager was uh, I gained credibility for him because he was, you know, he was white and he was working for a black man for the first time in his life and he didn't quite know, you know, how to handle it. So it was a lesson learned for, for everyone. And so, Bob, I can, I can imagine um, people listening to this thinking, why didn't Bob come out swinging? As each one of these stories, there would have been so many moments where you could have just come out and been very uh, kind of forthright or aggressive in your response to these various stories, whether it was the white manager being recognized as Mr. Davidson or the request of the customer to carry the paint out or even the bank scene with the Halloween costume with the sheet. But in fact, you created in each one of these situations a very sophisticated and nuanced form of resistance that allowed you to move through this in a way that brought you to a kind of point of success and growth and achievement that ultimately was much more powerful. Is that, does that resonate with you? Yes. Um, Lauren, I, I'd have to say, first of all, I was driven by my spiritual values in the sense that I'm, I'm driven by treating others the way you want to be treated. Gandhi's an idol. Martin Luther King, you know, in, in, in the spiritual practice, which I follow, which is one of even-mindedness. I try never to get upset, you know, to just get the emotions take over, but to have control of them. Because first of all, I can't think straight when, when that happens. But secondly, because I think I have the advantage if I am even-minded and respond in a way that's humanistic. Now, look, I'm not an altar boy, okay? I have been upset and get upset, but I am disappointed in myself when I do that, by the way, because I feel as though I let it get the best of me. So I strive to, to do it the other way. Sometimes you got to push back and don't let them push you over, but you don't shoot first and then aim. You need to think about where you are, think about what's going on. I don't know. I was raised that way. And I see that very powerfully, Bob. And I, I'm fascinated with how powerful, because not to think of it as resistance, I think would be wrong. I think mm -hmm. it is resistance, mm -hmm. but it's subtler and it comes from both mind and heart. And it is ultimately, um, I don't know, incredibly effective. Mm -hmm. And there's something very profound about it to me. Mm -hmm. um, and it echoes in lots of ways with notions of the beloved community. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I don't think about it as, as well. In the way in which you describe it, it's the way I live my life. You know, it's sort of second nature. And Lauren, what I am most proud of in life is that our three sons operate in the same fashion. Uh, we've been able to pass those values on to them. So Bob, can you take a few minutes to offer your perspective on 
where we are right now following the brutal murder of George Floyd and so many other stories, as you know, yeah, and yeah. what's what's yeah. happened with the movement right now. And yeah. yeah, I've given a lot of thought to this. We're at a watershed moment in in what I believe is happening in our country. You know, I lived through the Jim Crow of the 50s. I lived through the Civil Rights Movement of the 60s and 70s. You know, I was around the 90s. But this is different. First of all, this movement is being led by young people. You know, it's being led by young people of all colors, you know, all backgrounds, all shapes, all sizes, all genders. These young people today are saying, enough is enough. We want to live in a different type of world. And because of that, it has stimulated the interest of a broad set of people all the way through every institution in the country, in corporate America. I mean, when you have corporate people in corporate America talking about we adopt a Black Lives Matter movement, okay, when that would not be heard in a corporate boardroom five years ago. This is a time of change. Um, I think this time of change comes about, it's just a lining of the stars. Unfortunately, we have the first pandemic, which is the health pandemic, that forced people to be inside and to be focused. Then we had the unfortunate incident of the social injustice pandemic of George Floyd, and everybody saw that a person being killed right before their eyes. They saw young man, uh, Arbery, I think it is, in, in Georgia, who was hunted down by the two vigilantes and killed. They saw that before, the, and, and they could watch nothing else. You know, with the advent of the iPhone, it's before everybody today and in front of them. And so now that continues to, to move along. And with all of this, this has taken hold and there's a, there's a fever. So I am extremely hopeful about the future. You know, I may not live to see all the changes, but clearly our grandkids will live in a different world than uh, I've lived in. Yeah, I listened to uh, uh, recently a conversation with Tahanisi Coates, who said very much what you're saying now, too, that it's this is different than 1968. Oh, yeah. And he articulated a great hope for this moment, actually, yeah. for exactly the reasons you say. Yeah. You know, I was in the civil rights movement in Atlanta and got to sit in lunch counters and did all that, and et cetera, et cetera. But that's when, you know, black folks were trying to convince the world what they were going through. Alone. Alone, exactly. Now it is the iPhone telling everybody... We're not, we're not telling you to have here. You go, you can see for yourself, okay? I do want to ask you, um, you've been on the Board of Trustees of Art Center now 15 years? Um, 16. 16, yeah, right. <laughs> 10 years as our chair, amazing yeah. work that you've done. And I would like very specifically to ask you about your reflections on the institution and its challenges regarding race and representation and access and affordability, things that you and I have talked about so much uh, its demographics, however you want to go into it. But I, I really do want to invite you to talk about Art Center specifically. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm happy to do that. As you know, I never thought I, I would be involved with Art Center. I lived in Pasadena for years, didn't know uh, anything about it. But as a result of my son being there, I ended up getting involved. And when I first got involved, I thought Art Center, Art Center was a institution that was for young, rich, white kids. You know, why should I get involved? You know, there were no African-Americans 
On the board, when I when I got on the board, there were two females, Judy Webb and Elise Williamson. That was it. So I got involved with reservations, saying, you know, let me let, let me just try this out. My son's here. Let me see what happens. And then a funny thing happened. I ended up being in charge of a search committee and we identified a guy named Lauren Buckman. And I got to know him and got to see his values. By the way, the challenge, I should back up, the challenge that I, I had given to the search firm, because I'm, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to make a radical change. I mean, look, I'm in charge of the search committee, right? So I'm going to make a radical change because <laughs> I'm in charge. If you have me to be in charge, let me just do it. And I told him, I said, you know, bring me a diverse candidate. And they kept coming back to me and said, well, we can't, we can't find them. I said, no, go back again. You can't, you can't find them. I said, okay, well, bring me somebody that thinks like a diverse candidate. <laughs> okay. So I met this guy, Lauren Buckman, fortunately convinced him to come to Art Center. And with your coming to Art Center is when I decided that I would make an investment uh, because you and your value system and what I saw that you wanted to accomplish. And the thing that impressed me most, what solidified that impressed me most, and I don't know if you remember this, but when you did your first strategic plan, the first item you put top of your strategic plan was diversity. And I said to myself, Lauren's committed. If he puts diversity at the top of his list, you know, I got a responsibility to work with him to try to help him achieve his vision there. And so it's been great working with you. It's been great as board chair. For our, you know, our first task was that of, you know, building a board and that's made up of females, people of color, and of people of all types of diverse backgrounds from different parts of the country. And that was not true when I got involved with Art Center. So, and I think it's reflective of where you are taking Art Center as a worldwide institution. You know, someone asked me, because I did an interview recently about my role as, as chair of Art Center. I said, why is it important for Art Center to have, a, have an international board? Is it 50% of all the cars in the world are designed by an Art Center graduate? All the Samsung products are designed by an Art Center graduate. Apple is designed by an Art Center graduate. Art Center is an international institution. I said, it's known more outside of Pasadena than it is in Pasadena. I said, so it's important that we have a board that is, that, that is reflective of you know, our community that we serve and where our customers, our students are going. And, you know, I'll hit it right back to you about what your leadership has meant, but the college has come such a long way in, in these issues with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, mm -hmm. And we have so far to go. Mm -hmm. I think the current students are really struggling with what they see because there are still, and we need to be very clear and open-minded and open-hearted about this, that there's still such a long way to go. There are still some really serious issues that we're struggling with. But students today weren't around when, you know, 10 years ago. They, right. they haven't seen the progress. And that doesn't mean that their impatience should be any less. It just means that exactly. they haven't seen a development. Exactly. And I'm wondering how you would choose to respond to their call for change right now and how best to affect that change in the context of Art Center itself and what it needs to move through. So when you were 20 years old, and you were in college, the status quo was the enemy. Right? And we all thought about those people, they don't know what they're doing, they're not doing whatever. So first of all, what these young people doing are saying today, 
is reflective of being young and reflective of not being happy with the status quo. Now, what should be done in response? A lot of listening, empathy, showing an understanding, and then education. This is where we have to lead with empathy because one of the things when you do, when you have intelligent young people around, you got to be prepared to listen to what they have to say because they, you've trained them to, to think for themselves, right? And you train them to, to challenge and you train them to think outside the box and whatever. And then you have to try to educate them. Don't, don't just dismiss their ideas, but listen to their ideas, incorporate them and engage them. And I think that's what we have to do. We're going to have to do, we're going to, we're going to, have to do listening and education. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, with all the energy that that is being put into this, um, there's a lot of wisdom. There's Mm -hmm. so much wisdom among our students. That's what's kept me going for the 11 Mm -hmm. years I've been at Art Center. Mm -hmm. Um, Beyond their kind of brilliant creative capacities, they know a lot. And there's a lot of students right now who I think are are speaking great and important truths that we need to hear. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we need to kind of manage the change. Um, yeah. To quote you, it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint, and we need yeah. to be thoughtful and considerate and careful about how we move through it, acknowledging mm-hmm. all all the while the the pressure, the the need, the sensibility that comes from enough is enough, which is spot on. Yeah, exactly right. Well, I have a hope, Bob, that um, I've seen videos of your amazing grandson. <laughs> is one grandson now? Uh, one grandson and, and one on new- the way. New granddaughter coming in October. I have a hope, maybe even a vision, mm. that they come to Art Center, that in which they can thrive and find their strength and their passion and their creative spirit and move through in all the beautiful ways that, that we envision and that, frankly, you've done so much to build mm. in making Art Center. Yeah. Well, you, Leading Art ca- Center on, you know, on that path. Well, you're very kind, and you know I consider it. It's been teamwork. I say, you know, I've just been I've just been on the on the bridge while everybody else has been in the, in the engine room. You know, you know I've been waving and everybody else talking the direction we're going. So I'm glad to, I'm glad to be a part of it. Well, Bob, thank you, thank you for this amazing conversation. I have deep, deep gratitude and deep love for you, and um, just want to thank you for everything, everything. My pleasure. Thank you for your friendship. You know, I feel the same. You know, we are friends for life. And as they say, brothers from another mother. (laughs) Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff. Producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. Thank you.